Chapter Four of Shakespeare Personal Recollections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeira. Shakespeare Personal Recollections by John A. Joyce. In Search of Peace and Fortune. Blessed are those whose blood and judgment are so commingled that they are not pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stuff she pleases. Give me that man that is not passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core, I in my heart of hearts, as I do thee. Early on the morning of the ninth of September, 1586, William and myself took our departure from the Crown Tavern. The landlord, Tom Gill, gave us a bottle of his best gin and brandy to cheer us on our way to fame and fortune. Fanny Hill, the barmaid, threw kisses at us until we rounded the corner of the street leading to the old grammar school. We carried blackthorn cudgels to protect us from gamekeepers, lords, and dogs. As we passed the modest cottage where William's parents resided, he impulsively broke away from my presence to bid a long farewell to his angelic mother, and soon again he was at my side, flushed with pride and tears, exclaiming in undertone, a mother's love and fervent hope are coined into our horoscope, and to our latest dying breath her heart and soul are ours to death. In his clutched hand he held four gold sovereigns that his fond mother had given him at parting to help in the daily trials of life, when no other friend could be so true and powerful. Gold gilds success. Here, Jack, keep two of these for yourself. And if I should ever be penniless, and you have gold, I know you will aid me in a pinch. The wine nature of your soul needs no bush. We still have slept together, rose at an instant, learned, played, eat together, and wherever we went, like Juno's swans, still we went coupled and inseparable. William, said I, memory with her indelible signet shall long imprint this generous act of yours upon my soul and when hundreds of years have passed i shall tell of the undying friendship of two bohemians who day and night set their own fashion created a world of their own and lived ecstatically oscillating between the blunders of bacchus and the vanity of venus william's heart was heavy when turning his back on father mother brother sister wife and children at the age of twenty-two we passed along the Clopton Stone Bridge, and as we tramped over Primrose Hill, looking back at the rooftops and spires of Stratford, glinting in the morning light, the bard uttered this impulsive dash of eloquence. Farewell, farewell, a sad farewell to glowing scenes of boyhood. Ye rocks and rills and forests primeval, list to my sighing soul trembling on the tongue to vent its echoes in ambient air. No more shall wild-eyed deer, fretful hares, hawks and hounds entrance mine ear and vision, or frantically depart when stealthy footsteps disturb the lark ere Phoebus's golden light illuminates the dawn. Memory, many-hued maiden, oft in midnight hours, shall picture these eternal hills, and purling streams rimmed by vernal meadows and pillowed even in the lap of misery fantastic visions of thee shall lull deepest woe to repose and banqueting at yon alehouse nestling near blooming hedge and snowy hawthorn i shall live again in blissful dreams among the enchanting precincts of the silver serpentine avon 
to thee i lift my hands in prayer disappearing and pinioned with hope daughter of love and sunrise go forth to multitudinous london and buckle fortune upon my back to bear her burden to successful lofty heights of mind illimitable with this apostrophe we took a last look at the glinting gables and sparkling spires of stratford disappearing over the hill our steps and faces turned to london town that seething whirlpool of human woe and pleasure the air was cold and the country roads were rutty and muddy but the autumn landscape was beautiful in its gray and purple garb while the notes of flitting wild birds chirped and sang from bush hedge field and forest in a mournful monotone to the fading glory of the year the various birds chattered in clumps along the highway and then would rise over our heads in flitting flocks steering their course to the south and seemingly accompanying us on our wandering way to the great metropolis in our zigzag course we passed through the towns of Ettington, Oxhill, Roxton, Woodstock, Eversham, and Oxford. It was near sunset when the lofty towers and steeples of ancient Oxford, the great site of classic lore, met our view. In our haste to enter the city before dark, we jumped a hedge-fence and stone wall, making a short cross-cut over the lordly domain of the Earl of Norfolk, and just as we were again emerging into the great road, a gamekeeper was seen approaching with a huge mastiff, who rushed upon us like a lion. We were near a rough wall, and it appeared to both of us that unless we stood for immediate fight, the dog would tear us to pieces. The gamekeeper urged the dog in his barking, mad career, but just as he made a grand leap at William's throat, his blackthorn cudgel came down with a whirl and broke the forelegs of the mastiff, sending him to the earth with a growl and roar that could be heard over the castle walls that loomed up in the evening grey. The gamekeeper aimed a blunderbuss at the bard, but ere he could fire the deadly weapon, I jumped on the petty tyrant whelp and cudgelled his face into a macerated beefsteak. We then leaped the garden wall and rushed into the city crowd where the curtains of night screened us from dogs and licentious lords. We found our way to the crown tabard kept by Richard Devenant and his buxom black-eyed wife. The old Boniface was jolly, but was in his physical and spiritual dotage. Yet Nell, his second wife, was the life of the place, being immensely popular with the Oxford students who circled about the crown in midnight hours with hilarious independence that defied the raids of beadles, watchmen, and armed constabulary. Those were gay and roistering days and nights when the greatest yeoman, tradesman, student, or lord was the one who drank his comrade under the table and went away at sunrise like a lark, fluttering with dew from his downy wing, and soaring into the sky of beauty and action. It was Saturday night when we pulled up at the old tavern, and there seemed to be a great crowd of town people celebrating some local event. We soon found that the senior class of Oxonian students had conquered the senior class of Cambridge at a great game of inter-college football, and the cheers and yells of Oxford bloods permeated the atmosphere until midnight. A round table spread in the tavern hall was loaded with food and liquors, while songs and speeches were given with a vim, all boasting of the prowess and patriotism of Oxford. A number of strolling players and boxers were introduced during the evening. A young lord named Bob Burley was president of the club, while Matt Monmouth was the spokesman, who called on the various students and actors to entertain the town roysters who dropped in to see the free and easy celebration of the football victory. While drowning our grief and loneliness in pewter pots of ale at a side table in a snug corner, who should slap William on the shoulder but Ned Sadler, our old schoolmate from Stratford? 
Ned was a jolly rake, and had been in London sporting with theatrical companies, and, as a citizen of the world, was perfectly at home wherever night overtook him. At the height of the college banquet, Matt Monmouth announced that the president of the Cambridge Boxing Club had just challenged the president of the Oxford Club to fight, under the king's rule, for a purse of twenty guineas. A wild cheer rent the room, and instanter the chairs and tables were pushed aside when Dick Milton and Jack Norfolk stepped into the improvised prize ring made by the circling arms of the students. Five rounds with gloves were to be fought, and the champion who knocked out his opponent three times should be the victor. Dick Milton, the Cambridge athlete, when time was called, rushed on Jack Norfolk, the Oxford man, with a blow that sent him over the circling arms and into the chairs. Score one for Dick! Time was called, and Jack, although a little dazed, leaped at his opponent who dodged the rush, and with a quick turn got in a left-hander on Jack's neck and pastured him again among the yelling bloods. Score two for Dick! When time was called for the third round, the Oxford man looked bleary and tremulous, but with that bulldog courage that never deserts an Englishman, he threw himself on the Cambridge man with great force, and both went down with a crash. Dick shook off his opponent, like a terrier would a rat, and standing erect at the end of the room, waited for the call of time. Jack Norfolk did not respond to the call. Score three for Dick! Victory! Then the yell of the Cambridge students could be heard among the turrets and gables of classic Oxford, a recompense for their defeat at the afternoon football game. Dick Milton, flushed with wine and victory, held aloft the purse of guineas and challenged any man in the room to fight him three rounds. There seemed to be no immediate response, but I noticed a flush in the face of William, who modestly rose in his six-foot form and asked if the challenge included outside citizens. Dick immediately replied, "'You or anybody in England?' William said he did not know much about fighting with gloves, but if the gentleman would consent to three rounds with bare knuckles, he would be pleased to accommodate him at once. All right, toe the mark. Matt Monmouth called time. Dick Milton made a tiger leap at William and landed with his right eye on the right knuckles of the Stratford citizen. The quickness and science of the bard was a great surprise to the Cambridge athlete, and when time was called he came up groggy with a funeral eye on the defence and not on the tiger attack. Considerable sparring for place, and dodging about the human ring, was indulged in by Dick, but William foiled each blow, and as the Cambridge man inadvertently rubbed his swollen eye, the bard landed a stinging blow to the left optic of Milton and sent him into the arms of the landlord. When time was called, no response from the Cambridge champion was heard, and Matt Monmouth handed over the prize purse to William when the Oxford lads cheered the Stratford stranger to the echo and made him an honorary member of their athletic club. Screw your courage to the sticking place, and we will not fail. At the second crow of the cock, William and myself bid goodbye to the jolly Boniface and his fantastic spouse, who made a deep impression on the bard. In fact, he was easily impressed when youth, beauty, and pleasure reigned around, and had he been born in Kentucky, no blue ribbon stallion in the Commonwealth could match his form, spirit, or gait. Apollo, with his rosy footsteps, lit up hill, meadow, and lawn and kissed away the sparkling dewdrops of bush and hedge, cheering us on our way through the towns of Thane, over the Chilton Hills, on to Great Marlow, Maidenhead, and renowned Windsor, where forest and castle thrilled the beholder with admiration for the works of nature and art. It was late in the afternoon when we entered the broad highway to Windsor, passing numerous yeomen and tradespeople on their way to and from the royal domain of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth. In striding along, with hearts light and airy, 
we were suddenly startled by cries of frantic yells coming from the rear, and looking around beheld a wild runaway horse, and an open wagon with two young girls screaming for help. To see, think, and act was always the way of William, and as the horse rushed by with wagon and girls nearly clipping our legs off, the bard made a leap for the tailboard of the vehicle and landed in the midst of the frightened girls. He then, as if inspired with the impulse of a tiger, jumped on the back of the rushing animal, grabbed the trailing lines and neck of the horse, and steered him into a huge box hedgerow that skirted the castle walls of Windsor. Everyone went after the runaway to see the fate of the party, but strange to say, the horse was lodged high and dry in the hedgerow, while William and the girls crawled out of the wreck without a scratch, soon recovering from the fear, trepidation, and danger that but a moment before reigned supreme. We put up for the night at the Red Lion Tavern, and you may be sure that William was the hero of the town. Rose and Bess Montagle were the young ladies whose lives had been providentially saved, and their father was the head gamekeeper of Windsor. William was invited for breakfast the next morning at the Stone Lodge to receive hearty thanks and reward for his heroic action in risking his life for the salvation of others. But the bard excused himself, saying that he must start by daylight for his last stretch to London and only asked from the young ladies a sprig of boxwood and lock of their golden hair. At parting, the father threw William a bag of gold, and the girls presented him with the tokens desired, in addition to impulsive bashful kisses. We were off promptly by sunrise, and steering our course to Hounslow, Brentford, Kensington, and to the top of Primrose Hill, we first caught sight of the spires, domes, turrets, temples, and palaces of multitudinous universal London. London, the needy villain's general home, the common sewer of Paris and of Rome, with eager thirst by folly or by fate, sucks in the dregs of each corrupted state. End of chapter 4 Recording by Madeira